We're going to look at grace tonight and uh, talk about that. Take your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's always important when the, the preacher says, you know, these books are first and second and even third John and so forth. They get the right book. I heard about a couple who's getting married and they wanted to have something very romantic on their wedding cakes. So they're going to have 1 John 4.18, which says, There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out all fear. They want that on their wedding cake. Well, somehow in the transition, the first got left out. All they got was John 4.19, which says, You've had five husbands. The man you're living with now is not your husband. So it's very important that you have the right numeral in front of the book. So say we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and, and verse number 8. I want you to see one verse, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now look at that verse again and see how many times the word always, all, or some all-inclusive word is listed there. This is 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Excuse me, 9, 9 verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Seven times in one verse, he uses some all-inclusive word to talk about the grace of God. Here's what I found. Believers understand that grace is necessary for salvation. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We understand that. Believers know that, but, but, not, but knowing that God's grace is necessary for salvation in the past, some, for some reason we have not put that together and realized we need grace for everyday living. And we relegate grace to something that took place at some point in history when we were justified, when we met Christ, but don't realize we need it every day for our walk. And let me give you a definition we're going to use tonight for grace. Grace is the dynamic quality of the life of God within me that gives me two things, the desire and the power to live in harmony with God and His Word. That definition is a paraphrase of Philippians 2.13. Philippians 2.13 says it's God who works in you, both to will, there's desire, and to do, there's power, of His good pleasure. So, so this is Philippians 2.13, just in a statement. God His power, dynamic quality of God living in you that gives you desire and power to live in harmony with God and His Word. If I was going to illustrate this with the the scope of grace, that that there's an umbrella of grace or salvation, and first there's, there's justifying grace. When you met Christ for the first time, justification, just as if I'd never sinned. That's a starting point. There's sanctifying grace and there's glorifying grace. One day Christ is going to return... And we're going to be taken from this sin-sick world. It's going to be rebuilt and remade. And, and we're going to have a, a great time here in a, in a brand new scenario and be glorified with Christ. In the middle of those two points, where we met Christ and when he returns, is sanctifying grace. I love that song, God's grace still amazes me. Because the reason is most of us only think about grace as a historical past event or we're looking forward to the grace God's going to give someday and fail to live moment by moment in the grace God has made available. As a result of that, we're getting squeezed and the wrong thing is coming out because we're not applying moment by moment God's all-sufficient grace seven times there in that verse that talks about it. Paul said this, Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. 
Not by all the disciplines of my flesh. Not because I know more and do more and work harder like we talked about. Grace makes us what we ought to be in Christ. Great Grace is, is the, the abundant life of Christ is the result of work of grace in our life. And why is that not happening? What do we need grace for anyway? Well, you need the grace of God to get up in the morning. The alarm clock goes off. You won't have that reality delayer. You're not going to float off for another 15 minutes and uh, you'll never, never land. You need the grace of God to, to love people you disagree with. You need the grace of God to, to, to go to work. You need the grace of God if you, if you lose your job. Or, or maybe a worst case scenario is to keep the job you have with the boss that you have. You need a grace for that, right? I understand this. It seems all the geniuses of the world are working for all the idiots. You ever notice that? I mean, you hear people talk about their boss. If my boss had a brain, he'd take it out and play with it. What's the deal with that, right? You need grace to, to, for your job. You need grace for us as a student to go to school and the, the teacher calls on you and someone wakes you up, you know, saying that they're calling on you. You need the grace of God. You need the grace of God to trust God. You need the grace of God when you fail. You need the grace of God for big things, little things. I go on and on and just say, you need the grace of God for everything. I was sharing with some teenagers that truth one time. A girl came to me the next day and she said, last night you told us we needed God's grace for everything. I thought, I don't need God for everything. I can brush my teeth without God. I don't need him for everything. I got up this morning to brush my teeth and, and my sister had been there before me. She got toothpaste on the handle. I touched it, got it on my clothes. I started yelling at her, chasing her through the house. And God says, see there, you can't even brush your teeth without me. <laughs> she said, you were right. Now, I, I, we can go on and on and on, but let me summarize it in two statements. You need the grace of God to have a right response to the conviction of sin and a right response to the circumstances of life. Every time God convicts you of sin, you need to apply the grace of God. We'll talk about that. And every time you are squeezed. If you were here night before last, we talked about the fact that whatever's on the inside of us comes out when you get squeezed. And, and, and a lot of us probably have had the opportunity in the last 24 hours, 48 hours, to go through some circumstances, and it wasn't Jesus that came out. How can we live a life that when we get squeezed, Jesus comes out, not the flesh, not, not someone else sitting on the throne other than Christ? You need to apply the grace of God. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. If you would, over in Hebrews chapter 12, we see a, an individual who failed to use Failed to appropriate, failed to take advantage of the grace that God made available. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12 says, We're to lift up the hands that hangs down. Next verse, make straight paths for our feet. Look down now, Hebrews chapter 12, and verse number 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Don't, don't resist God's grace. Don't come short of using God's grace. When you come short of using, when you resist God's grace, it chokes off the life of Christ in you. And when you resist God's grace, it says, a root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble, and by it many are defiled. I think we're not experiencing the fullness of God in our life today because we've resisted God's grace in the midst of a difficult circumstance. We've got bitter to a person at a situation, at a job, at God himself. And notice what happens to that bitterness in the next verse, verse 16, that there'd be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Bitterness lays you open to moral impurity. I, I think the reason moral impurity is so rampant in our church today is because we've become bitter. Kids are bitter because they've been disciplined in anger. You've broken their spirit, not their will. 
Husbands and wives are bitter because they've been hurt or embarrassed by their mate. We've let personal hurt grow in our lives. And and so the enemy comes along and says, "You you deserve a little satisfaction. Here, have some moral impurity. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about the church. It's been true of every church I've ever been in. We talk about the importance of purity, but we're not. Very few teenagers graduate from high school as virgins. Very few women go through their adult life without living in, for some period of time in some fantasy world with someone other than their husband. Very few men are faithful to their wife in every way. And the reason is, is because we have let personal hurt grow. We've not dealt with it with the grace of God. That bitterness has grown. And Satan says, you deserve, you deserve some feel-good time. You deserve something. Here, have this. And we say, I deserve that. And, and bitterness, I believe, is the door that opens us to the issue of moral impurity. It stems from, from, from resisting God's grace. Let me explain grace this way. There are three types of grace. Every time God gives us truth, Satan's goal is to take truth and push it out of balance. So so if grace is a pendulum, like on a clock, there are two excesses, two swings of this pendulum that would be out of balance. One swing of the pendulum is what we'll call cheap grace. This is a big group of people who, who talk about grace and sing about grace and, and, and so forth. But the fact is that they use grace... As a license, I should say abuse grace as a license to disobey. That they like to say, we're in the age of grace, God did away with the law, do whatever you want to do. That's not true, but that's, and that, that's why there's so much sin in the church. Anytime someone holds up some kind of a standard, says, Man, you shouldn't be involved in this, they say, oh, you're being a legalist. Now, now before you call someone a legalist, be careful, because think through what you're saying, legalism is adding works to salvation. So when you call someone a legalist, you're pronouncing them lost, unsaved. So be careful about just throwing that term. People use that term like a missile to hurl anyone they disagree with. Someone says, well, maybe you shouldn't be involved in that or do that. Oh, you're being a legalist. Be careful about just throwing that term out. And then they love to say, you know, we're in the age of grace, got away with the law, do whatever you want to do. And so the term legalist becomes a smokescreen they can hide behind to defend their fleshly lifestyle. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Matthew 5, 17 and 18, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. And then he said in verse 18, until heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? Yes or no? Answer me. No, come on, make sure. Okay, until heaven and earth pass away. Not one jot or tittle will depart from this book. Then he goes on in Matthew 5, and he blows apart the Pharisees' doctrine of sin. He says, you've heard it said of old time, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, in verse 21, if you hate your brother, you've already murdered him in your heart. Verse 27, he says, you've heard it said of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, if you look at a woman in a lustful way, you've already committed adultery. He goes on in Matthew 5 and says, you've heard it said, but I say, you've heard it said, but I say. The the, the fact is, grace commands more than the law ever demanded because God keeps the record book on our heart. Steve, I felt bad when I came in, now I feel worse. You're saying I have to keep the law and the intent behind the law? But here's, here's the good news. It is only by the grace of God that we can do anything. Now, the other swing of that pendulum is no grace. This would be a group of people who are, in the, in the true sense of the word, legalistic. That they believe you're saved, sanctified, through grace, through faith, plus going to church. 
Or you're saved by grace through faith plus saying your rosary. Or by grace through faith plus keeping some law or some Sabbath or so whatever. And they have a whole list of things. If you do these things and have faith, then that's salvation. That is legalism. That's adding works to salvation. If you do this and you're baptized, do this and you go to church, whatever it is. You have a whole list. I don't drink. I don't chew. I don't go to the girls who do. That kind of a thing. Whatever. And you have all this list of things. If I don't do these things, then that makes me a good Christian. That, that is legalism. That is lostness. It is by grace alone. So in, in the middle of this, the pendulum centered is God's grace. And, and the simplest way I can define God's grace is simply this. It is desire and power to obey. Did you ever lose your desire to obey God? I have. Ever lose your desire to read the Bible? I have. Ever lose your desire to pray? I have. Ever lose your desire to, to, to meet the needs of your wife like, like Jimmy was talking about tonight? I have. That happens every time my wife wants to go shopping. It wouldn't bother me if every store in America got blown off the face of the earth tomorrow. It'd be just fine, right? And so she wants to go shopping, and I have the power to do it. I go walk 18 holes, no problem. But I just I don't have the desire. What do I? I need the grace of God. Now, now sometimes I have desire and no power. That happens every morning. The alarm clock goes off, and I have a desire to get up and meet with God, but my power levels on zilch. I want to lay there in bed. What do I need? I need grace, desire, and power to obey. And if we understand that every time we go through a situation of squeezing or every time we are convicted of sin, we have an opportunity either to cry out for God's grace or try to do it on our own. We won't take time, but in Galatians 4, it says Abraham had two sons and these two sons contain an allegory. He said the one son is a picture of the law. And it's from Mount Sinai and leads to bondage. The other son is a picture of grace. So, so every time you get squeezed or every time you're convicted of sin, you're going to do one of two things. Either you're going to run to Mount Sinai or you're going to run to Mount Calvary. If you run to the law, here's what you do. You start to defend yourself. You get squeezed, so you get angry. Somebody spills the milk. Somebody's late, whatever. You get angry. And you start. Well, if, if they would have been late, if they wouldn't have spilled their milk... We, we start excusing ourselves. Ever make excuses? That this is why I'm like this. You just don't know my past. You just don't know what that parent did to me, what that person did to me. And we start making excuses. Or, or, or we start blaming. You, you just don't know the husband I have, the wife I have. I was in a church some time ago where a lady came and was talking to me, and she, she showed me she wore her wedding ring on the wrong finger. She said, I do this because I married the wrong man. That was her way to protest, right? So she would say, my problem is not me. It's this man I married. Or we start rationalizing. At least I'm not as bad as that person. At least I don't do what they do. Or like Achan, we start covering up. We hide our sin. And, and, and rather than coming to God and, and just agreeing, a typical progression is this. We sin, God convicts, we confess, God forgives, and we sin again. And God convicts, and we confess, and God forgives, and we sin again. And God convicts, and we confess, and God forgives, and we sin again. And after a while, the devil comes along and says, why don't you leave God alone? You've confessed the same thing so many times. If you're really serious, you would do something to prove to God that you deserve his forgiveness. So we struggle, we strive, we become Avis Christians. We try harder. We're going to say, okay, God, I'm, I'm reading my Bible more. That's what I'm going to do. 
I'm going to memorize scripture. I'm going to attend those long life action services every night for two weeks. God, I'll even take my wife to the mall, the epitome of sacrifice. And then we crawl up into God's lap. We say, now God, I've done this and this and this and this. Will you forgive me now? What a horrible way to live. Listen, here's the greatest discovery you're ever going to make in the Christian life. The Christian life is not difficult. It's impossible. Only one person never lived the Christian life. Who is that? That was Jesus. He didn't want you to try. He wants you to die. He wants you to get off the throne, remember? Get off the stool. Let him take control. He don't want you to try to do it. He wants you to give up. Get out. And let him be in charge. Let him be in control. Rather than running to the law, run to Calvary. And what do we do there? We agree with God. We say, God, you're right. I, I, I don't have the power to do this. I don't have the desire. In humility and brokenness, we acknowledge that we were angry. We acknowledge that we need him. We, we agree with him. Do you know how hard it is to get people to agree? I mean, we just, you, you know the little story of the boy who, who he's in the kitchen and there's a, a broken cookie jar in the back and he, he comes out and there's a trail of cookie crumbs. He's got cookie crumbs all over his face, hands behind his back, and his mom says, read the cookie jar, as he sprays her with cookies, right? And we say, that is so childish. But how many times does God say, you know, you're proud, not me. You're stubborn, not me. Just to agree with God. We were at our, the camp. Some years ago, and our youngest son, Zach, came in, and uh, he was holding Anna's arm. It was bleeding. It still attached to her body, but I mean, he was holding her arm. And, and he said to me, he said, Dad, Anna's arm started bleeding. It was like a miracle, you know, like the miracle of the bleeding tortilla. Just all of a sudden, started bleeding. And it turned out he had swung a stick, poked me. He didn't say that. He just said, Anna's arm started bleeding. Amazing, right? And that's kind of the way we are. I got a problem. My marriage is a mess. Life's a mess. How'd that happen? Me? Me be a part of that? And just in humility and brokenness to say, God, I, it's me. I'm a mess here. I'm wrong. I've not been the husband, the wife, whatever I've needed to be. In humility and brokenness, agreeing with God about our sin. And then to acknowledge our need. The Bible says in Hebrews, God gives grace to help in time of need. But if you don't acknowledge your need, the grace doesn't show up to help. You try to do it in your own strength. This little phrase, God, I need you, needs to be the mantra of your life. God, I need you. When I first heard this, I took that phrase, God, I need you. I, I wrote it on some three-by-five cars. I put one on my dresser, one on my dashboard, one on the mirror. So throughout my day, my mantra was this, God, I need you. Or in a meeting where a, an architect in the church took that little acrostic, he put up on his computer, and every hour he programmed his computer to flash up, Jenny, God, I need you. Just to remind him of that. We're, we're in a meeting where, where somebody made us these little rubber bands and, and just put Jenny on him. So we just put, write it on your wife's forehead. Do, do something, but remind yourself, moment by moment, God, I need you, acknowledging that need. And then thirdly, the way to live that is to abide in Christ. Now, take that little piece of string you have out, and uh, you may need someone next uh, to you to help you with this, but I want you to tie it around your, your wrist. Dan, you come up and help me for a minute before you do that, will you? I need you to help me do something. You kind of stand up here on the stage. You take that, that piece of string, have somebody help you to tie it up. But um, before you do that, here, I want you to do this. You're going to be, you get to be God. You're so wonderful. Okay, now what, what I want you to do is you're going to help me. I want, you to, I want you to pull me right up on stage. You do that? 
Okay, you're not doing too good a job. You're not a good. Okay, try it more time. Just pull me, pull me right up there. Will you? Okay, not happening. All right, so let's try this. Take this. Hold this. Now grab this string. Okay, I'll wrap the string around here. And do this. Now I'm, I'm going to put my life in your hands. All right. I want you to pull me up on stage now. Okay, here we go. Okay, you did a great job. You're wonderful. Okay, you can sit now. Now, what part did this string have in that pull? None, absolutely nothing. And here's the deal. Here's Dan wasn't really God, but the, the rope, the, the rope is God, and we are wrapped around Him. And when we bring all of our weakness to all of His strength, we have all His strength. So, so tie that little string around your wrist. And, and wear it tomorrow. When someone says, what is that string? Here's what the string stands for. I am weak, but he is strong. Say that with me. I am weak, but he is strong. If I am abiding in Christ, if I am wrapped around him, even though I come along with the rope, I do nothing. I bring all my weakness and get all of his strength. By myself, I can't do anything. I am weak, but he is strong. And if you can remember that and live in that, It'll change the way that you live. I, I was just in Pennsylvania last week. I was at that church a year ago and had shared this. And a lady came to me and said, Steve, I had th- I've had this on for a year, this little piece of string. And I've thought about it almost every day for the last year. I am weak, but he is strong. And if you remember that and live in that and abide in that, it's not about your... You, you said, I, I can't love my wife the way you all... That's right, you can't. Only God can do that. Get off the throne. I can't stop that habit. That's right, you can't. Only God can do it. Get off the throne. You are weak. I am weak. But he is strong. Say it one more time. I am weak, but he is strong. And, and the next time someone says, what's that piece of string? Just say, it reminds me. I am weak, but he is strong. If I live in that reality, if I live in that understanding and knowledge, it'll change everything about the way you live. Now, now I don't think you'd be here not if you didn't want the blessing of God in your life. I'm going to tell you how to get blessed of God in your life. If you want the blessing of God, if you start in Genesis, go all the way through the maps, you'll find this. Obedience brings blessing. Disobedience brings conflict. If you want to be blessed of God, you've got to obey God. Now, go back to the first of the message. Obedience is doing exactly what God says, when he says, with the right heart attitude. So if I want to, if I want to be blessed, I've just got to do what God says, when he says, with the right attitude. In order to obey, I have to have two things. To obey God, I've got to have this desire to obey God and the power to obey God. So if I want to be blessed, I do what God says, when he says, with the right attitude. To do that, I've got to have desire and power. What is desire and power to obey? What's that a definition of class? That's grace. So here's grace. If I want to be blessed of God, all I need is grace that gives me desire and power so I can obey, so I can be blessed. So here comes a million-dollar question. If all I need to enjoy the blessing of God is the grace of God, how do I get more grace? Who does God give grace to? James, Proverbs, and Peter all say the same thing. God resists the proud, but he pours his grace in the humble. You want to be blessed of God? That's how you do it. You humble yourself. And here's how great God is. He is so committed to us that he brings about two things, the conviction of sin and the circumstances of life. And he brings those into our life so we will humble ourselves, agree with him, acknowledge that we need him so he can raise that grace to us, which is desire and power, so we can obey, so he can bless us. What a God. 
What an incredible God. I, I, I like the way, um, I like this definition of grace. Grace, like an ambulance, races to the scene of a need. Everyone's sitting around your house, minding your own business, and, and you heard a knock at the door and you went and opened it, and here stood a couple of guys, and they're, they're, they're in their paramedic uniforms. They have their satchels and their ambulances out front, and they say to you, um, is anyone dying in your house tonight? We're doing some door-to-door visitation, just kind of looking for dying people. No, that doesn't happen. They don't go looking for dying people. They, they sit there in their office and wait for the 911 dispatcher to say, get over there to 314th Street, someone's dying, and they race to where the scene of a need is. I can imagine up in heaven on Grace Avenue. All these ambulances waiting, lined up, waiting for someone on earth to say, help God, I need you. And when that happens, that ambulance pours to that place. God races to the scene of that need. God, if that baby wakes me up one more time, I'm going to throw him out the window. Help God, I need you. Ooh, and God pours grace in that life. God, if my, if my boss, his brain's the size of a flea bite on a piece of spaghetti. God, God I can't help. God, I need you. Ooh, and God pours grace in that life. And every time we cry out and acknowledge our need, God's grace races to where the need is. But if you don't cry out, you do it on your own. And the reason we are failing is because we have tried to live this Christian life in our own strength, and our own energy. Grace races to the scene of our need. And God is so committed to us that he creates those circumstances to remind us of that so we'll humble ourselves so he can pour grace into our life. And now some of our circumstances are temporary. Some of them are lifelong. I had a temporary circumstance. If you know anything about it, you, you, you look at our trailers out there and you say, well, what a great place for a vacation. We drive past your house, say what a great place to live, because uh, uh, you know, we're on the road about eight months out of the year in those. If you know anything about these um, trailers, they, they have uh, two holding tanks. They have uh, um, one is uh, gray water, dishwater, bath water. It kind of runs out and evaporates. And then the other water is uh, black water, and you take care of that at a sewage disposal station, et cetera. Well, we, we were driving through um, Atlanta. Our son at that time was a, a past, associate pastor in Atlanta. And so we were, we were just on the way. We had one night. We're just going to be able to see the kids and the grandkids for a night. And so we got there, got the trailer all unhooked and got our truck unhooked. And, and we're going to go out to eat that night. And, and, uh, and I, I got ready to go. And Debbie said, Steve, the, the holding tank is totally full. I mean, it's, it's backed up in the toilet. We're, we're, we're not going to make it through the night. We've got to do something. I didn't want to unhook the whole trailer, hook it back up, drive it someplace. Only going to be there one night. So I, I got a black trash bag. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to get enough relief for the night, right? And so there was a, a sewage cleanout valve come over by the church. And I thought, if I can just get a little bit from here to there, I'll be okay. So I, I had my good clothes on. But I, I got this black trash bag. And I, I pulled this lever. I filled it about a third full. Thought it would be good. Put it back in. This will get us through the night. So I'm carefully walking across the church parking lot with this trash bag, one third full. And I get about halfway across. It must have ate through the bottom because it exploded all over my pants and my shoes in the parking lot. Here I am standing in the middle of last week's lunch, right? And, and uh, y- you know what I needed right then? Ooh, right? Apparently, my grace tank was on empty. And God says, here, have a circumstance, and let's see what you're going to do. Are you going to get upset with the guys who didn't dump your trailer, get mad at whatever? Or are you going to cry out for Grace. And, and God creates those circumstances so we will go to him and not get angry, upset, and frustrated, but cry out for grace. Now, now, some of our circumstances are temporary. Some of us have lifelong circumstances. I, I have, I have a, a lifelong circumstance. I have epilepsy. I, I have grand mal seizures. I have 39 grand mal seizures. 
So every muscle in your body contracts, expands, you bite your tongue, foam with the mouth. It, it's quite a show. And, and, and God knows if he wants to get my attention, all he has to do is let me have a seizure. Now, having epilepsy, I'm supposed to live a scheduled routine life, go to bed at a regular time, get up at a regular time, eat regular meals, live a stress-free, pressure-free life. Wherever that is, I have no idea. But for 44 years, we've lived on the road. I rarely have the same schedule, anything but stress and pressure-free. And in 44 years, I've never missed a service because of a seizure. I've had seizures. But God's grace is tailor-made for my epilepsy. I I wouldn't trade my epilepsy. I I have learned things about God because I have epilepsy. It's caused me to need him in a a a special way to to get through life. And 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 God's grace is tailor-made for my epilepsy. I I can minister to some people that you can't because I have epilepsy and you don't. There's people you can minister to that I can't because of the unique life message God has given you. And just as God's grace is tailor-made for my epilepsy, God's grace is tailor-made for your situation. If you'll cry out and acknowledge it, God's grace is available. But we say, I'm going to fix this myself. I'm going to change this child. I'm going to change this maid. I'm going to change myself physically. And you can't do it. That's the whole point. You know, People say, well, God won't give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will. That's the whole point. All of life is more than you can handle. And he's made it that way, so you'll stop trying to handle it yourself and say, God, I can't do this. I need you. But we think we're so good. We think we're so smart. We think we're so uh, well-equipped that we're going we're gonna to do this. We're going to solve this problem. We're going to change this person. We're going we're gonna to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And we're going to deal with this physically, financially, whatever it is. No. He's waiting for you to say, God, I can't do this. I can't handle this situation. I need you. If you live in a constant dependence and need for God, his grace races to that place, gives you desire and power so you can obey, so you can do it. Does that mean all your problems are going to be going away? No, I still have epilepsy. I still have that. That, that, That's not going to change. But God's grace is tailor-made to meet me at my need. And I can be at peace because I know that he's in charge, because he is faithful. But it starts by you acknowledging that you can't do it, that you need him. Listen, there, there are marriages here tonight. I don't know who you are, but there are some of you here tonight. You're just two people living at the same address. Your family is no more than a well-decorated empty package. But there's some of you that are struggling in, in, in time with God. Some of, you are, some of you men aren't going to go home and pray with your wife tonight. You're so messed up in your own life. You, you can't even start there. There are issues in your, in your morals. There's issues in your relationships. And, and you're sitting there and saying, well, I'm, I'm, I'll fix it. Eventually, I'll fix it. No, you won't. God's saying, I want you to acknowledge that you need me and stop trying to do it on your own and let me jump in there. Let me sit on the throne. You get out of the way. God, I can't do this. I can't change this. God, I need you.